round of the sci-fi roundtable uh, podcast. Tonight we will be chatting about food and drink in science fiction. Now this is a topic that has been going on for a long time and each of our uh, panelists here have their own novels and their own thoughts about food and drink and maybe we'll see if we get a couple of recipes too. So let's start with an introduction. Bonnie if you would. Good morning guys. Well it's morning here in LA. Glad to be here. I'm looking forward to this as a something of a international foodie. Is this a topic near and dear to my heart? I'm also West Coast, a uh, little bit farther east. Uh, well, just inland. I'm still uh, LA, larger area, and uh, I do enjoy my my food. I, I've been around the world. I've tasted uh, food of just about all sorts and eaten multiple animals that most people are like you ate what (laughs) (laughs) um and of course i i find that adding food to my stories kind of gives a little bit of a personalization to it definitely you say you're east uh, east of la uh does that put you all the way out to vegas or not quite that far um no um i'm I'm about uh two hour uh, given traffic (laughs) out here i'm about uh, two and a half hours from la Okay. But that's based on traffic. Which means he could be like five miles away from that Right. <laughs> so, Bill. Oh, uh, yeah. Hello, I am uh, Bill McCormick. Um, I'm 2,000 miles east of L.A., so uh, I'm in Chicago. Um, I, too, like Damon, have traveled a lot in the world. Uh, I remember the joy of one time eating kimchi in a small lady's home. Well, I'll all the Koreans in their home were smaller, tiny people. But uh, she introduced me to the joys of a ghost pepper when I bit into one. Oh! <laughs> oh. I, I, I have a spicy... Yeah, I, I was in a uh, bar in Thailand, and uh, one of the uh, girls behind the bar decided that I needed to test her um, lunch. That was the spiciest thing I have ever had in my mouth. <laughs> yeah. it. Um, and I, I like spicy food, so, you know, it was like... It caught me by surprise, but a little bit of milk later, you know, and I was, right. I was kind of okay. Um, I, I didn't vomit or anything. I was really proud of myself, all things considered. But uh, so, yeah, I'm a, I'm a bit of a foodie, and I used to, um, I published my own cookbook for six years. Uh, it was an awesome. annual thing that, yeah, had guests, people like D-list celebrities and C-list celebrities, and a lot of MTV wannabes and people on MTV, uh, sports writers, novelists, uh, scientists, um, uh, Ian, Mc, uh, Ian McDonald uh, from uh, Discover. He was the science editor there. We had a lot of really cool people. You know, uh, we had a lot of really cool people, and they'd contribute recipes and little stories. And we used, I'd give it away every year to anyone who wanted. Usually, it'd get rid of about 100,000 downloads every year. So people liked it. And then talk about food, lots of food. That's awesome. Okay. And before we get a little confusing, uh, I'm Eric Klein. Uh, I'm 7,500 miles from LA. Um, <laughs> And um, food is a serious part of the novels I write and some of the most interesting novels I've read. Uh, A little later, we'll have another Eric and we'll confuse everybody at that point when he joins. So let's start again with Bonnie. What is the first occurrence of food that you can recall reading about in science fiction? I think it goes back to some of Paul Anderson's works. Um, because Anderson, of course, having been a scientist himself, was really determined that he should do all of his homework on every element aspect. And that went down for it all the way, not just to working out the dimensions of the planet and the gravity and the, you know, whether or not it had a rocky core and whatnot, but also to how the enzymes and proteins would affect humanity. So if he had, you know, his face, there's this wonderful, some of the Nicholas, uh, Van Ryan stories, where dear old fat food loving Nick is stuck on a world where they have all kinds of food that that's accessible to them, but it's, they can't eat any of it because the proteins don't work. It won't do them any good. 
And so he and his companions are at risk of, of dying of starvation in the midst of plenty while they try to work their way out of their, of their predicament. And that really, as I was reading that as a kid, and it really struck home. I said, wow, you know, dying in the midst of plenty, but it makes sense that proteins have to work, that the fact that you have access to food in another world doesn't mean that you can actually digest it or that, it can, that you can eat it. And mm-hmm. that, has, that has stayed with me, and I've worked that into some of my stories. Well, that makes sense. That I'm guessing that's part of your uh, uh, inspiration as to why the uh, Noshers. Uh... Oh, I love you. Yeah, what a wonderful man. <laughs> <laughs> that, but that's it. That the sissies. Um, now, in my story, set on the world of Sisyphus. Um, Sisyphus is an out to get you world. Even the grass is out to get you. The grass in that particular world being called Noshers, um, and it's carnivorous. Um, the thing of it is that humans are poisonous to, uh, because our proteins don't match theirs. So humans are poisonous to the native life of, of Sisyphus. Um, and the native life of Sisyphus is so aggressive and unattractive that no human is interested in even trying to eat it. Um, so you just, just described Australia. the Aussies, though. So with ha- what happens is that the plants will eat humans. Plants don't care. They'll eat you. It will kill them, but they're too stupid to understand that, that, that by eating you, they're going to commit suicide. And by the time they figure it out, you're dead and they're dead. Um, but it is the fact that we are poisonous is what enabled humans to work out a treaty with the local uh, Sisyphus matriarchs because since she couldn't, you know, in the penal colonies, she couldn't eat the humans. They were poisonous. So she was willing to talk to them. Fair enough. What were you going to say, Eric? Uh, for, I was going to say, first off, the food. some of the food in Australia actually is edible. Um, <laughs> I'm thinking that if our proteins are dangerous to the plants, if you'll pardon a little bathroom humor here, um, peeing on the lawn probably would kill it. <laughs> <laughs> There's no longer. The thing. Actually, what, the, what that would do would be to attract all of its relatives who would come at you from the back? Is any moisture at all? They respond to any moisture whatsoever. Oh, so um, protein and moisture—they don't care. They don't care. It's, it's any kind of moisture, even sweat, will attract them. And once it was an osher, an osher goes from a seedling to a seven-foot-tall fanged bulbous. Think of a little shop of horrors, the bulbous fanged head that, oh, that was tendrils that would reach out and ensnare its prey. So, and they could do that in under three minutes. So a nosher is really, really an unfriendly creature, but it will it will respond to any not any most moisture whatsoever. And by you know, and again, and its first instinct is eat or be eaten. So it will attack you. It will eat you, and then it'll go oops and die. And but at that point, by that point, it's too late for both of you. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, but something um, that eats it, and it will die too because of you. Well, it, if it's eaten you. Nothing else is going to touch it except other noshers, and that, yeah, they will also die. But the sissies themselves are intelligent enough that they won't do that. And they they will pick up. There's a problem here. They'll leave it alone. They will then eat all the other relatives. <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, for myself, um, the first food reference that pops into mind is panther sweat. Anybody panther catch that sweat. reference? Very Yes, it's a drink. Oh. <laughs> Eric knows where that's from. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, from uh, the Stainless Steel Rat. Um, read it uh, out of my dad's library when I was 14, maybe. So wait, maybe you 12. got the Stainless Steel Rat before you got Hitchhiker's Guide? I did. Panther Sweat before Pangalactic Gargle Blaster? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yep. But that, that's the first food reference of any form that uh, crop, crops to mind. It, it really struck me uh, with the description of just how strong it was. <laughs> yes. What about you, Bill? Um, I think the first food reference that I could remember, or drink reference, or any kind of reference, uh, would be in um, Ring World. I read that when I was young, as a teenager, when it just came out. And um, as much as I disliked the writing in the book, and I've never gotten over that, I think the style is clunky as hell. Um, I remember the character speaker to animals and how they had to get different types of food for everybody as they got to the ring world because nobody had the same 
nobody could eat the same stuff. And so they were mm, they had to get raw meat for this one. No, not exactly, but the the the, the, the Kazin could eat only one, one. They had to have one kind of thing. And everybody kind of had to have their own thing. Humans have one stuff. The people in the ring world, they were all mutants. Nobody cared. Um, and then, of course, the uh, advanced, when they became super advanced, um, they ate other stuff as well because they had they no longer had teeth. They had gums. And, and I just thought that was kind of cool. That was kind of a cool, um, what do you call it, uh, kind of food for thought, for lack of a better phrase. Um, just, you know, looking at what would happen in different things. And I, and I try and incorporate some of that into my writing. Um, which, you know, uh, which just different people, different places going to like different things. And I mean, if you've traveled like Damon has and you've traveled around the world, you know that like just going to a new country, the food is, the cuisine is different, the drinks are different, everything's oh, different, yeah. you know. One of and, my uh, first, uh, yeah, one, one of my goals uh, as I traveled around, McDonald's being as uh, oh, yeah. as stuck in the world as it is, uh, and just about every country has at least has a couple of them was to have a cheeseburger in every country. And you know what? They taste different in every country. Oh, mm-hmm. very much so. When, when I was in the going to, to England and trying a Big Mac and discovering sweet mayonnaise on whole wheat buns and stuff like that. Um, it, it was not the burger of her upbringing. And I had a coworker who used to literally go into Burger King in Istanbul airport expressly for the vegetarian burger. Hmm. Huh. I could see that. A large falafel patty. Oh, I remember cool. when we were, when I was in Cannes, uh, I was there for a music festival and my, my now ex-wife, we went to the burger McDonald's because it was the only food she kind of trusted. And we went in and she's like, it doesn't taste right. And I looked at the wall and it's like, because every, all the elements were locally sourced. So that cow had been in somebody's front yard yesterday. And right. uh, I thought, so I was like, all right, cool. This is fresh. I'll eat this. She, she was very freaked out about it. Okay. Let's everybody welcome Eric Wickland uh, onto the group. Um, Hi, Eric. Hi, Eric. Everybody. It's good to meet with you. Sorry I'm late. No problem. We were just getting into what is the first occurrence of food that you can recall from science fiction? First food? Yeah. I had to be something from Star Trek. Um, I imagine... Probably uh, something from, uh, well, maybe the next generation when Worf was trying to share some of his cuisine. Okay. The, the one that yeah. kind of got to me um, is thinking back to Stranger in a Strange Land and the, the, right. the Mike Soup. Yeah. Um, Need salt. Okay. Now, it's been about 40 years since I read that book, so that's probably why I don't remember that. Um, the Martians had a custom that they would eat their honored dead. Um, so somebody yeah, in order Mike to properly and, grok them. Yeah. yeah. So Mike goes out and effectively commits um, suicide as a martyr. And when everybody is done, they're sitting in there with the pot of Mike's soup. Um, and the comment was, he needed a bit of salt. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was kind of the final pun. Um, <laughs> the other one that um, always got to me was. Uh, the concept of the uh, bush mills, as described in the various Callahan stories. But you okay. are, you end up with brand name alcohol that is relevant. So I actually <laughs> stuck a tribute Callahan's into my novel. Oh, I, I have to admit that Callahan's did influence later on as I worked on it, uh, Joe's Bar and Grill. It oh, was yeah. a very special place. I'm truly uh, sorry we never discovered it. So, uh, I, uh, do yeah. you have fun Tuesday? My family has been known to do that, yes. <laughs> uh, I, I am a Spider fan, I, get, I admit that, without reservation. Uh, his books are very punny. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, he has some of the best titles, too, like Lady Slings the Booze. <laughs> Absolutely. <Yeah>. So, <laughs> let's... Uh, Let's play this a little bit. Um, why don't we start uh, over here with Galaxy Tab <laughs> and uh, say, what kind of food do you inter- introduce into your own work? I'm going to ask. I'm going to add to that, and why? So, Eric, okay. that would be you. Well, that'd be me. Okay, I'm Galaxy Tab. Okay, yeah, you're, you're Galaxy Tab. Up, it's, it's saying that you're on your tablet. Oh, okay. Um, 
So in my current work, I, I didn't get exotic or fascinating, but uh, uh, everybody aboard uh, my ship, uh, the ESS Springbok, uh, loves to eat shawarma. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh, even when they go down to a planet, they get shawarma. <laughs> uh, the chief engineer likes to eat uh, dolmas, and he keeps them in his pockets. Okay. <laughs> pockets? Yeah, yeah. If you've ever eaten dolmas, uh, you know, that's really not something to keep in your pocket. <laughs> yeah. Because it's oily and moist. And at least. I'm sorry, Eric, I didn't hear that. You'd need a plastic-coated pocket. pocket. Exactly. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, so, yeah, yeah, food enters into it uh, quite a bit. Um, the uh, senior chief, Sabong, is uh, the master of, of food. And uh, so when prisoners are brought aboard the ship, uh, they can't believe that they're being fed this outrageously good food. And then they find out, no, this is the regular food that the crew eats. Which so, is you know, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So some people just have a culinary talent, and that's what Senior Chief Sabong is capable of doing. Um, so, yeah, food gets mentioned quite a bit. Uh, perhaps I'm just hungry all the time. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Could be. Fair enough. So, Bonnie, what about you? Yeah, the food that I've, I've introduced you, probably the one that... that it gives me the biggest kick personally is simply working with deep space miners. Now, a lot of my work, a lot of my stories take place in deep space on the galactic rim. Uh, and you have generational clanships. It's not that they're generational in the sense of going to or from um, one star to another star at subpar, you know, subspeed of light, but that these are ships owned essentially by a clan and they, they're miners. So they live generation after generation on board ship. So many of these people have never been planet side on board ship. Everything is recycled. Um, and that, that kind of sort of creates a distressing dinner menu for people who are planet born and are used to eating things that start out from someplace else other than the ship's recycling system from the toilets. So yeah. you're literally eating your own reprocessed waste matter for dinner. Yeah, it's like what goes into the meatloaf? Um, and you really want to know the answer to that. <laughs> you really don't want to know the answer. Uh, water, the idea of water coming from any place except, you know, well, okay, you get the urinals, you clean it, you, you, know, you, you process it, you purify it, bingo, you've got it. You know, it's, it's a recycling system. Well, that's absolutely so, one of the uh, drawbacks, the icky realities of long-term space travel. Um, exactly, but you, know, you have a closed system and you can't exactly step outside to, you know, Get some, fre- you know, get some fresh stuff. So yeah, they have hydroponics and whatnot, but they they have to really look at re- reproducing everything for themselves. Um, and so I try to play on that because for spacers, this is totally normal. For their house guests, it's like, thank you, we'll pass. You know, you, know, you got any straight boots? Yeah, you know, straight boots that imported. If not, we brought some with us. Um, because for so I try to I try to work on that and how that reacts to people and how people react to it. Um, that makes sense. That, that, that goes into a number of different stories. Yeah, they're probably the only thing that they can easily bring in then would be ice water. Exactly. <laughs> right, yeah. and ice water, but, but that's just for your officers in the upper, you know, if it's a uh, civ ship, a civilian ship, then that's for the upper classes only because it's expensive. You have to harvest it off of, you know, basically off an ice asteroid or you know, harvest it out of an asteroid because that's, you know, you're not going to find it anyplace else. Right. Um, and there's a, a mythology of water. So water that comes from Earth or homeworld, when you're this far out in the galactic rim where, you know, it, it's even at hyperdrive speeds, where, where there are jump drive speeds in, in my books. Um, it's a six-week journey. The idea of anything coming from Earth is super precious. So water from Earth is sold in, like, micro ounces, and it's valued in lives. It's not even valued in, in credits or money. It's how many people got killed getting this out here. That makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. It's not a nice, but it's realistic. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, Damon, what do you have? Uh, well, I have uh, the simple mundane, uh, the beginning of uh, Chaos Fountain. Uh, you find uh, Kyle eating a uh, carne asada burrito <laughs> from uh, <laughs> a <laughs> from a uh, little corner uh, shop. 
the since he's in he's as in San Diego at the time, um, that's from pretty authentic uh, carne asada. Um, mm. Later on, uh, he has a few meals, um, but for the most part, it the food is kind of secondary. Um, there is a large meal that he partakes in uh, early on, where he's also given a uh, glowing concoction that uh, refreshes him and. Uh, Later on, he begins to suspect it was uh, meant to do a little bit more than just uh, give him a little bit of a refreshment. Mm -hmm. But that's what happens when you're uh, wandering around and playing tail to someone who's uh, several billion years old. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They tend to, uh, what, you're in your 30s? (laughs) (laughs) You're not even born yet, are they? Right. Um, in the upcoming homecoming, I've got the I deal with food a lot more there um, because as uh, Jason, the main character, grows up, um, because he's growing up under ever increasing uh, gravitational fields um, and strain, which is forcing his body to adapt to that, he actually ends up having to add a nutrient powder of sorts that provides him the necessary nutritional boost that he can't get from food directly later on in his life he literally has to add that to every almost everything he ingests whether it be tea food everything makes sense okay is that is that to um, enhance his bones well that that's part of it because as after he reaches a certain um critical mass as it were uh in his body body's physiological alterations from the uh ever increasing gravitational fields his his body structure changes and he needs the higher volumes of trace metals and and whatnot to ensure that his body doesn't deteriorate and collapse under its own weight Hmm. makes sense how about you bill well, I have nothing that intricate. Um, I use food as kind of a, in the Brittle Riders, I use it as a, it's kind of a set piece to give people an idea how each of the characters and mutations are different. Uh, for example, the uh, Lord Superman and all of these giant six foot tall cockroaches, who all happen to be evangelical Christians, they like everything sweet. So, like when they drink brandy, they put two scoops of sugar in it. When they have cookies, they put sugar on it. Everything has sugar on it. It's a mutant cockroach. Um, but I think the, the, the most fun I had in that, Years ago, when I was young and stupider than I am now, um, I was in uh, Chihuahua, Mexico, and there was this nice lady there. I'll, I'll never forget her name was Yvette. She was very pretty, um, and she made homemade tequila. She had the roots in the back. She fermented them herself. She made homemade tequila. This was electric. <laughs> it was amazing. It was like it, 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 I, it was completely illegal, of course, um, but it was delicious and fun. And uh, a couple glasses of it, and you were out of your mind anyway. But um, so when I wrote The Little Riders, I created a drink called Glurp, which is like tequila on steroids and uh, a thicker tequila, you know, more uh, more viscous. And um, that becomes that becomes kind of a running joke in, in the stories, because every time someone new to it takes a drink of it, they're like, and the people who used to drink it called the Calendorian. They're like, and we beat those guys at war? How, how can we have beat them at war when they drank this stuff? And it's, it becomes a running joke throughout the whole thing and throughout the book. And um, a character named Slant takes a liking to this. Everybody else is like, no, no, no. You know, we'll sip it for ceremonies and stuff, but we're not touching this stuff. Slant, on the other hand, is like grabbing bottles of it everywhere he goes. Um, and uh, he's a fun character to write. But anyway, so Glurp becomes, you know, my, my liquid of choice in there. In my new book, uh, which is coming out in, I think, two months, uh, Go Free of the Mist, that one I get really into food. Because I got to have a lot of fun. It's set basically in what used to be called India. Uh, it's now called uh, Barat. And uh, Dravida to the south, of course. And uh, so I, I dived in. I, I love Indian food. So I dived into it. And I and brought in a, a, a European uh, affectation of sweetbreads. And added that into the traditional Indian diet. Um, because the giant half squid, half people, they like eating those sweetbreads. They like the organ meats. And um, so... So, you know, I got to play with some stuff, and I have a lot more fun with food in, uh, in Gopher than I did in Brittle Riders. But I think in Brittle Riders, because every time I got into food, they eat. I mean, one of the early scenes in the in the book is in a bar where the titular characters were me. 
So, you know, it, it's not like they don't eat and drink. Um, they usually drink something called skank, which is basically cheap beer, um, you know, like a bad ale. Um, then they have a uh, huaybin, which is a Chinese blood wine, which becomes very popular in Chicago at the time. And, um, you know, different things. It's a lot more alcohol in the Brutal Riders than there is food. But when we do talk about food, like I said, for the Sudermen, it's with the sugars and stuff like that. <clears throat> with the Minotaurs, it's all roasted meats. They like everything roasted. They don't want anything raw. Everything's got to be roasted and well done. Uh, and, you know, just a little nuance of the cultures. It allows, food allows me to highlight those without having to go down the deep and, and say, this is, you know, and here's a, here's a 10 page dissertation on why these people are different than the others. Just a little bit of their food and a little bit of their common lifestyle allows me to get back to the story. And um, in the Gopri, I kind of make it a part of the story, so that's different. But uh, it's just fun. I like playing with food. I like playing with it and showing people different ways to approach common objects or common foods. Sharon? Yeah. Sharon is caring. Um, I decided because I was doing everything on colonies here in the solar system, air pressure would probably be lower than sea level air pressure here on Earth. So I took a, a hint from what airline cuisine is, and all of the cuisines that I show throughout the various colonies are slightly more spicy, stronger flavors. So the Thai, the Mexican, um, various other things are, are much stronger flavor out there. Um, you mentioned uh, tequila. Uh, I looked at it in a little bit of uh, adaptation on Mars, and you'll be able to grow blue agave there so you can get um, tequila farms. Although I do, I do give a, a, a passing mention to, to the Mark Watney vodka, um, just to give kind of a, a reference just for the joke. Um, but the thing I found interesting was researching food for doing sci-fi is that there's some really funky stuff that they actually pay and people get literally paid to do these kinds of research. So I discovered in doing this, they actually got a grant for the, to use the uh, centrifugal force um, that they would use to test astronauts in the European Space Agency to do a study as to what is the proper gravity to make French fries. <laughs> All right. Special made a um, pressure cooker that was sealed that they could deep fry them in, put them in and spun them up at from a third of a gravity for the moon up to three gravities for Jupiter to see what was the right one. And it's like, okay. Okay, somebody's tax dollars paid for this research and paid for people to sit there and taste and comparison test based on criteria, French fries. And well, this is a scientific research. <laughs> I am truly in awe of the fact that somebody actually thought of doing this. Um, spoiler, it was actually three gravities. Um, really? Yes. Perfectly really? on the outside and soft on the inside. Um, European style. Um, on the other hand, what we do to our own astronauts here completely appalls me. They go up and they send chocolate chip cookie dough, have them cook it in the International Space Station, and then send 100% of the cookies back to Earth to be analyzed. This is cruel and unusual punishment. Don't worry, this, it's, not, it's never going to be 100% coming back to Earth. Yeah, we, they may say it is, but it's like, there's always slippage. There's always there's always some kind of shrinkage in there when it comes back. Well, yeah, and, and you got to think, that whole space station is going to smell like cookies, you know? <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's, the air has been recycled. There's like days of cookie smell up there. Yeah. So, like, oops, we let one go. We just had to go catch it. Sorry, there's nothing, you know, there's nothing left to send back. Well, you guys know the rule that if a cookie breaks... You have to eat it. Yep. Oh, oh yeah. Space, you can't have the crumbs. <laughs> but you don't. There's no calories in the crumbs. Remember that. <laughs> okay. Who knows the story of the first food taken into space? Nope. Mm. Yeah, Wasn't that kibble? No. It was corned <laughs> beef on rye, stuck inside one of the NASA's jumpsuits as they went up for one of the Gemini flights because he didn't know how long they were going to be up there, so he. Brought his own sandwich with him to flight. <laughs> like, how was he planning on eating it? <laughs> I, I just assumed it was the kibble that went up with uh, one of the dogs. Right. They were not. Uh, I don't think. What, what wasn't the dog named Sasha? Yes. The, the Russian dog. Yeah. Yeah, but she died, didn't she? Poor yeah, thing. reentry. Um, 
Well, because they land them on on the ground in yeah. Russia. <laughs> yeah, the impact will take care of you. Yeah, you, you hit the ground doing 500 miles an hour. I don't care how much you've had to eat. It's just not going to work. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. But the um. But you know, there's other things that we we in terms of just of thinking in terms of what looks alien or feels alien, and those the different foods on Earth. Whereas, you know, L.A. is a great place to be a foodie because every every cuisine on Earth is over here. Um, mm-hmm. Same with Chicago. Yeah. Ours uh, is just warmer, literally. Yeah, San so, Francisco, New York. Yeah. But I remember, and I live in a section of L.A. called Tehrangelis, so we have a huge, huge Iranian population. Um, and not only does the cultures teach you what it's like to, you know, give you some really great ideas for alien behaviors, but... The first time you see some foods, which are perfectly normal and delicious and whatnot, but you look at it and it goes, somebody had diarrhea and then she in it. Oh, okay. <laughs> and what is that? That's your dinner. Like, hell, it is. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I like to take the ideas from, uh, and I don't remember the name of the dish, but it's uh, essentially fresh octopus mm-hmm. um, where they drizzle the uh, soy sauce over it and it starts moving because it's so fresh that the salts trigger nerve response. And uh, I took that, and some of you may have seen uh, me kind of running with it a little bit uh, with a food contest, cooking contest at some sort of alien fair where a human got roped into being a judge. And the idea is some of the things, they were still alive, and he would stick a fork in it, and these still living creatures that, you know, had sauces and whatnot poured over their bodies seem to take pleasure in him carving off chunks of them. <laughs> uh, very um, much like uh, um, Hitchhiker's Guide. Uh, yeah, let's meet the meat. <laughs> um, right, meet the meat. You know, the uh, uh, restaurant at the end of the universe. Mm-hmm. Well, there was a right. case last year, I think it was, of somebody who was having octopus or squid and she started eating it and it basically attacked her and started sticking to her face and stuff. The suction. Um, <laughs> it wasn't quite dead. It was still partially alive apparently or something. Um, yeah, a little too fresh. Yeah. That's, little... that's how I feel about steak. I don't want it to move when I cut it. Yeah. When I was younger, we were in uh, Crete and I was sitting on the balcony of this little hotel. We'd done some shows there. And we're on the balcony of this little hotel, and the lady who was running the hotel came up and brought us breakfast. Like six o'clock in the morning, we'd done we'd done a show till four. We just got back to the hotel like five thirty. We were looking for coffee. She brought us a big jug of ouzo. Oh, um, <laughs> oh, oh boy! Man. Six in the morning, mind you. The sun is barely up, and she brings, <laughs> there's like twelve of us, and she brought us up jugs of ouzo, uh, some strong Greek coffee, and, and not enough for twelve people, just like a couple of girls. And platters of baby octopus that had been drenched with uh, garlic and uh, oils. And that was breakfast. That was my first breakfast at Crete. And, uh, Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> that's wow. I, was hammered, I was hammered by 10 a.m. and the food was delicious. Huh? Stopping in Hong Kong, there was a this bar. I could walk there if I ever got there, but the name of it escapes me. Um, but every time we pulled into Hong Kong, um, I was U.S. Navy just <laughs> as data point one of those appetizers they served was deep fried baby octopus so good <laughs> mm. i was in tokyo i had eel eye soup and i was like it's like wow it's a funny name for a soup wonder why oh i'm eating eel eyes uh, with lemon butter. yeah and it's actually not that bad <laughs> oh actually actually i really liked it um i liked it a lot so the last few times i went to tokyo that'd be like my first name but you can get it in local stands it's a common food over there um, yeah, so you, you, you just get it. One it. of my favorites is a, a nice uh, um, Tokyo-style yakisoba. Mm-hmm. Have you tried putting in those local um, exotic um, local delicacies that the, the locals never eat but always like to, to give to the newcomers with a smirk? And a, yeah, you're, you're going to love this. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Like yeah. deep dish pizza in Chicago. Nobody eats deep dish pizza that lives here. We just give it to the tourists. Hey man, you want to try this? It's great. <laughs> 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 That's uh, that's what I sold out here. Have a piece of it. Yeah, there is some of that in the uh, uh, at the in the third book of the Little Riders. There's uh, 
some messing around with people's heads, like, oh, you're going to love this. And of course, no one else in their right mind would eat it. But that's as the, as the clans are coming together, they start joking with each other. And it's my way of letting people know that the, I'm lightening up the mood now. They're going to have some fun with things, as opposed to bludgeoning each other to death in the field until you know, their brains fall out, which is kind of where the first two and a half books are. There's a lot of blood. So as I'm lightening that up. kill off everyone to start out the gate, so. Yeah, I kill every man, woman, and child on the planet before chapter one starts. That's in the prelude, and I just get them out of the way. It, it was fun. And Go Through the Mist, I kind of bring humans back, but only as they find a recording of them. Because um, I don't want people in my books. They clutter them up. <laughs> but yeah, you know, I like I like using foods and different things just to, to give flavor to the area, to what people are like with it. I'll give a little spoiler. My current work in progress, food is the secret ingredient that actually solves the medical mystery and plague that's going on. The difference of foods between cultures, why... Nice. You have a, you have a whole plague, and it's like, well, why are these half of the population getting sick and half of the population isn't? And wait, you've got two identical twin sisters. One is deathly ill and the other one doesn't have it. What's different? And they start investigating, and it turns out to be related to the cuisines they eat. One married into one ethnicity in one state in their own. Therefore, they're eating different style foods with different spices, different ingredients, and it makes a difference uh, medically. That, that, make, that, that sense. actually makes sense because you could have, I mean, a, a simple medicinal as a spice um, that uh, turns out to be the key treatment or weaken the system in such a way that opens you up. So yeah, in this particular case, as long as I'm dropping the spoiler, it's star anise. Starring. Uh, yeah, I right. can see that killing people. Okay. That's actually pretty good. But the, um, you know, we see this like right now, we're going to this, as, you know, as Iranians, we see this a lot because now there's this big thing with, with turmeric um, and sumac and whatnot. Now, Iran well, has been using sumac and turmeric in my, in my uh, counter. Yeah. Well, you, but you oh. cook with it, right? Yes, of course. Yeah. Okay, the thing of it out here, people are paying $25 for a little tiny package of turmeric because they're taking it either in pill form or they're mixing it with water and drinking and complaining about how horrible it is. Like, would you drink, you know, would you eat straight salt? No. Would you eat straight pepper? Okay, some people would, but you know, you, this is not what it's for. It's You cook with a guy's person's been doing this for 3,000 years. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I was <laughs> in Costco the other day and they had this stand that had the this turmeric and whatnot concoction that they were trying to force on people that they wanted to charge like 50 bucks for mm-hmm. a bottle and i'm like I, Are you I, what the what sort <laughs> of absurd quackery nonsense is going on here it's I, mean, I understand people are trying to be healthy and whatnot, but come on, have some. They claim that turmeric is good for fighting certain cancer cells and other things, and you can buy a, a pound thing of the powder or the tablets in Costco for under twenty bucks. It's like, or you can go down to your local Iranian market and get it for five dollars. Yeah, right. Yeah, and it, this, this is kind of funny. On a related note, I have a friend of mine. Um, she's got two master's degrees and a doctorate in medical sciences. And she posted a thing on Twitter about how holistic medicine, you know, like this turmeric, I'm sorry, I'm going to pronounce it Chicago style, turmeric. And, uh, but how, you know, people are using that as a, can make them, it can make them feel better for a little bit. It can give you a psychological lift, but in, mm-hmm. in reality, it does nothing for you medicinally. There's no, no medicinal value to these products whatsoever. And she went, went through all the science on it and everything. And she put it all up in a beautiful link. Very first tweet underneath it goes, my yoga teacher says she's wrong. (laughs) (laughs) There are a couple of things that are a little weird that seem to have scientific basis. Um, In the book, uh, because I'm having people live on Mars and they're all worried about the heavy metal and arsenics in the soil. Um, So I go through a whole process on how they clean the soil using alfalfa and pill bugs to clean out the heavy metals. Um, Six or seven crops of alfalfa take it out so you can use the soil. But people are eating a lot of cilantro or, um, yeah, cilantro, um, kuzbra, um, Chinese parsley. It depends on where you grow up is what you know it by. Um, mm-hmm. And to be honest, this is one of those herbs that either you love or you hate because you, it's related to do you have the right taste buds for it? But yep. it, it's, it's either tastes good and you like it or it tastes like soap. 
exactly. Well, at least so I've been told. Yeah. I personally, I'm a big fan of cilantro. So, but I just finished a big guacamole that I handmade cilantro. It, it has some advantages for chelating out some of the metals out of your body. So if you have a minimal amount of it every day or every week, it helps clean the things out because they will bind to some of the properties of the cilantro, and they will it'll take it out of the the body. Um, and in Bonnie's case, it will end up um, in tomorrow's dinner. Um, <laughs> but um, Properly seasoned and spiced, however. Yes. Which is a concept um, from the Blue, um, Blue Event Horizon, where they talk about Chan food, where you have all of these carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen molecules and uh, compounds out in space that if you collect them, uh, in one of the books, um, and I forget drawing a blank on the author's name right now, um, he has factories out there in the Oort cloud collecting all of the stuff and turning it into food powder. So then they're using it to create the protein powder and everything else using all of these raw uh, molecules that are just floating out there. And it's like, okay, this is one step short of using the food replicator. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it is, but it's certainly viable. Yeah, I think... I mean, I think one of the reasons I didn't want, there's so many foods on earth now that are, are alien to 80% of no matter where you're at, you know, <laughs> um, you know, you go to Israel, you're not finding a lot of cheeseburgers. You go to Japan, you're not finding turkey. You know, there's just, they don't, food isn't there. They don't have it as a regular thing. And so I kind of went at it with that point of view, like this food is popular in this region, this food is popular in that region. And like I said, use that to show the diversity of the different things. Um, but you got to talking about the metals and everything. And my short story, Borbless, that just came out, Sci-Fi's Last Boom, uh, which, by the way, is do not read that if you're under the age of 18. In fact, you know, if you're under 30, just don't read it. It's uh, <laughs> got a lot of F-bombs in it. But one of the things I posit in there is that different worlds have different core metals in their in their molten cores. And so in Earth, it's iron. And on this other planet, it's kind of a nickel thing. And then more of a copper thing and so on and so forth. So diseases that could kill a human do nothing to another race because they simply don't have the proteins in their body to allow them to grow. They simply die in their bloodstream uh, until the disease, of course, comes along. Why not everybody? I'm an asshole like that. But, um, but you know, it's, um, it's uh, you know, and talking about different worlds, you kind of have to take that into account. Like, not everything is going to be a nice iron core earth with, you know, hydrogen, oxygen, so on and so forth. And in my comic book series, Legends Parallel, there's five parallel earths you know in the multiverse but each is slightly different from the other so they each have a slightly different ecosystem some of the stuff that you can eat on one earth would be almost poisonous to you on another because not everything evolved in the exact same manner i mean you don't have to be you don't have to be a rocket scientist to look at just how tomatoes are different now than they were 300 years ago you know Absolutely. Just I could see an alternative uh, world where um, what we refer to as deadly nightshade would be as innocuous as um, cilantro, and cilantro would take its place as uh, the poison of choice. Right, and um, that's one of the things that I have in, in, in Legend of Pharaoh. It's, it's, it's an upcoming episode, but it's a dinner between alien humans, humans from one Earth and humans another, and they realize that the humans from the Earth Four, the only way they, the only way they're going to enjoy dinner is if they pour raw zinc on top of it because they're they're so used to having zinc in their diet and they don't have any, we don't eat that. We eat it, but not in bowls of it. We don't eat, you know, tons of zinc every day. These people do, it's in part of their diet. So it's kind of a funny scene, but it's also kind of a precursor to what's going to be one of the bloodiest scenes I've ever written in a comic book. So yay me. But, uh, but yeah, you know, even something simple like this earth and its mirror are going to have different, different nutritional needs and different nutritional things that uh, are people want, people don't want, you know. And I mean, just going from Chicago to France, it's different food. People eat differently. They talk, different, you know, they want different things. Uh, France to Japan, you got all sorts of different things. Italy, nice stop in the middle, you know, but everything's different. You don't get, even if they're making the same food, even if they're making a Mediterranean food, because the ingredients aren't local, it's a Mediterranean style food. It's not, the, not what you get when you're there. And, um, so you try and you know try and keep that honest and keep it, and um, you know and like all glurp has to be made in Calendar, otherwise it's not really glurp. All champagne is champagne, champagne region of France. Otherwise it's just sparkly white wine. 
Um, you know, we try and keep try and keep it all straight. And, uh, and yeah, it's not just even it's not just what's made or how it's made, but the cultural attitude towards how mm-hmm. one eats. Um, and that's mm-hmm. a great point with the French because for the French, dinner is a two-hour affair. You take a bite, you take a sip, you talk. You take a bite, you take a sip, you talk. You talk some more, you talk some more. You take a bite, you sip, you talk some more. So the French do not, you don't rush you don't rush the French through a, a meal, which of course gives them wonderful heart pre- uh, blood pressure, great heart. You know, allows them to eat horrendously fat and foods upon occasion, without suffering the consequences to their cardiac system. You know, an Iranian, on the other hand, a meal, a proper meal for a party for a guest would make it may take three days to fix. And it takes less than 30 seconds for these guys to scarf it up. <laughs> That's like going, to, going to a restaurant. I went to a restaurant in China, not Hong Kong, but in, in China proper. We were going up to Mongolia. And we stopped in this little restaurant and they were getting mad at people who were there more than five minutes. It's like, here's your food, eat your food, get the hell out of here, go back to work. What do you, it's food, just eat food, go. You know, they have a very practical. That sounds language. like San Francisco. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you got a lot of Chinese in San Francisco, so that's why. <laughs> yeah. Well, the Chinese, yeah, they don't have a whole lot of time. They got a turntables over because they got a line all the way out the door already. But exactly. the, and it's not just, it's not just like any one thing, any one aspect of, of food, but the culture of how do you eat it? How do you appreciate it? Um, in one of my scenes in Homeworld, um, we have uh, some of our characters are trying to sneak in. They've managed to sneak into the uh, president's manor. You know, not for any malicious purpose, but they're trying to break every rule in the book. They, they manage to sneak in. They get caught because the, the manor is located in Hawaii. One of the characters is Hawaiian, and she orders poi. Now, that's it. That's enough to betray her presence that she's there, simply because no human being who has ever tasted poi, if you're not Hawaiian, you're never going to order poi. <laughs> uh, not that bad. It's kind of bland. Bland. I mean, wallpaper paste has more flavor than poi. Unless it's, <laughs> yeah. unless, if it's the homemade stuff. Homemade stuff is actually kind of edible, but the commercial stuff is just like, oh, come on, people. <laughs> yeah, but Hawaii, Hawaii, um, you, spam is hugely popular in Hawaii. Um, you know, yeah, but they can get well. Wong. It's just like the natural dish of Wong. Yeah, but it, it, you know, it is what it is. Um, I have a friend of mine, she and her husband run lesbian raves in Hawaii, and uh, one of the things they do is spam appetizers with poi, bowls of poi, and uh, wildly popular in Oahu and a couple of places. Where yeah. But, you know, I, th- I really think they sick, they sick that on the tourists. Uh, <laughs> now, poi, I, I agree. People eat poi, and there's a, there's a ritual for poi. You can only use two fingers. But when you dip it up out of your little cup, you can only eat it with two fingers. If you eat it with three fingers, it's bad manners because you're being greedy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've seen people eat it with sugar. I've seen people eat it with salt. I've seen people eat it with hot peppers. But it's it's, it's just a, it's a bland, neutral base, whatever. It's just a beautiful I, shape. I, I, I could see kind of the hot peppers, but it, it, I, like you said, um, it, it's not much different palate-wise from taste. All paper paste. <laughs> um, one of the things I do play with a little bit um, between uh, Kyle and Kate um, is that uh, Kate, not being human, um, has different reactions to certain things. So that uh, something that I'd have to look it up again, but I think it was actually cilantro, now that I think about it, um, has a, an effect similar to chocolate. Mm. So nice. he fe- he feeds her some salsa, and she's ready to jump his bones. <laughs> <laughs> I think you mean catnip, not chocolate. But okay, um, <laughs> no, 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 no. He, he means chocolate. I can attest. I've got two two wives gone, and a third one coming. And I trust me, chocolate. It's chocolate. <laughs> no, I find that chocolate is the substitute, not the inspiration for that. But okay, in my uh, in my short stories that I write for my blog. Um, I often have aliens coming down to earth to visit and the, almost all of the aliens, uh, the chocolate has the same effect as alcohol on them. So done when, right. they wanna, Good. when they want to go get drunk, they go get a cup of hot chocolate. Yeah. I, I did that a little bit, uh, not in the same manner. I had, uh, Kel, the, uh, main character of uh, log entries, um, after they crashed, 
uh, on the uh, core world, they basically was like, I'm running low on supplies. I've got these uh, creatures that uh, are running around and they took a couple of down, uh, cooked them up um, and were enjoying them. And then the next thing they knew, they were having tributes of various vegetables and whatnot delivered by these creatures and had this sudden realization that they made a rather grievous error as to the sentience of said beings. <laughs> and, uh, uh, oops. <laughs> yeah, well... Um, I just once, ate the ambassador. <laughs> well, what they did do is they ate the uh, parent of uh, who the creature that became their ward uh, late after they realized their error and started to interact with them as what they really were. Yeah, in the Brittle Riders, I have the Sominids come to Earth, and um, they're 12 foot tall, blue, kind of bipedal, mammalian, and the only reason they came to Earth, the only reason in my book, they came to Earth to drink and have sex. They had their own food on ship, they were good with that, but they wanted our booze, and um, it's kind of a running joke in the book. Uh, they get so drunk one night, they accidentally saw the moon in half with a plasma laser and kill a couple hundred thousand people, so that, that ended the party. But, uh, so, Yeah. <laughs> They're kind of a downer. Yeah, but Shakespeare of sci-fi. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. yeah, you know it's um, it's 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 fun. I you know I'm, I am what I am. I, I write the way I write. But yeah, the Sominids are uh, they're 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 just proof that alien life exists, and I use it as proof that faster than light travel does not exist. Um, they're they there's long-lived creatures that just wander the universe and these big, magnificent ships and uh, go looking for booze and sex. And that's all they want out of life. And they collect up all this amazing knowledge from all these other worlds. They just don't care. They just, again, all they care about, they got booze, you got sex, we're good. You don't have those, they just keep flying on by. Wow. Sounds like some some fun people. (laughs) (laughs) Sort of sounds like the U.S. Navy. (laughs) Well, Uh, (laughs) uh, no. Speaking as someone who toured with rock bands, you can tell where I got my influence. Yeah. Yeah, there you go.